are in our final part of a series called Modern Idols. And before we uh, dive in this morning, I want to say, number one, we had a wonderful women's conference this weekend. In fact, if you were here, would you give a round of applause for... I don't know, I guess for you, um, for being here. Um, <clears throat> but we also uh, have something coming up this uh, upcoming Sunday that uh, Delaney talked about for a second. And I want to just highlight it because uh, what we know, again, like Delaney said, is churches are places that are really easy to uh, attend. It's super easy to go and to sit in rows. Um, they're really, a lot of times, especially the bigger we get, the more difficult it can be to really feel like you belong. We think that everybody needs a place to belong. Everybody needs to be known um, and to know people, to know somebody. And so we have created an environment specifically for that. And in fact, even if you're not, you know, new, relatively new, and if you are connected, I would say you ought to go to uh, Intro to DCC at some point. It's the first Sunday of every month during the 1130 service. So if you've got kids, there's childcare that's, you know, that's going to be there and available in our normal kids ministry. Um, but we talk about a lot of the stuff that we don't have the time or the opportunity to talk about on Sunday. Uh, stuff like how our theology um, impacts our, or creates really for us our mission and our vision, um, which determines our church structure as a whole. We don't talk a lot and on Sunday mornings, hey, let's just have a Sunday about our church structure, you know? But it, you, you ought to know how those things are connected, our core values. In other words, the cultural distinctives, um, things that are distinct about who we are. Uh, and by distinct, I actually mean distinct, not like, okay, prayer, right? We should be in prayer. Prayer should be a big part of who we are because we're a church. But um, what are the things that are a little bit different that kind of make up the DNA of who we are? How we approach doctrine, how we approach leadership, how we approach finances. This is the information, again, that we don't have the opportunity to take time on a Sunday morning very often and talk about. And so we want to create a place where you have the, all the information and tools to become um, or to make this basically your home church. And so we would love for you to be a part of that. Um, <clears throat> as we're launching into this series, or we have launched in this series called Modern Idols, depending on where you are in your faith background or your upbringing, the idea of idols can mean a hundred different things for us. But what we mean by idols is simply this. An idol in our context that we're using it in this series is anything that we put in front of or ahead of or prioritize over God. And there's a lot of good things that create idols for us. When we think idols, oftentimes the, the, the basic connotation is that it's bad, it's negative. But what you've probably experienced, what I've experienced, what we've all experienced is everything that we would place in front of God. If you are someone who believes that God ought to be the number one priority or the number one thing in your life are good things. They're family, they're your career. They're making sure your family is comfortable. They're making sure that you have a future. I mean, they are, they are almost always good and positive and necessary things. But we've all experienced this when we wake up one morning and we realize that the primary thing, the primary person, the primary idea that drives our life as believers isn't God. And so we've been unearthing through this series the core of each of what we feel like oftentimes creates this, this misprioritization for us. And this week, we're going to talk about something that I think is so incredibly prevalent for us. In fact, everybody in here has dealt with this, struggled with this, whether or not, frankly, you're a Christian or not, whether you're on the periphery of church or, man, you've been following Jesus since Christ was a corporal, like wherever you are in that whole continuum, everybody has dealt with this, and it's simply this comparison, comparison. Comparison for all of us creates a sense, and it really manifests itself in a ton of different ways that we prioritize things over God. So let me give you a couple of um, just general observations that you've probably noticed too. We all struggle with comparison, and the dawn of social media has not made it easier. Now, 
I am not critical of social media. I am not the dude that comes up and says, delete everything. Cause I, you know, if that's what you want to do, then cool. But I think that it's like, oh dude, I'm not on social media. It's like, and, and you listen to NPR and we get it. You're a hippie and you hug trees. It's fine. I listen to NPR too. Anyway, I just offended anybody who does that. But here's the thing. When we look, we can look at different people's highlight reels, right? We can look at their social media accounts and we can often say, oh my gosh, social media has created this. And here, here's what I think. I don't think social media created any of it. I think social media has simply displayed what was always existing inside of us. It's just more accessible now. I can see your perfect Christmas. I can see the way your family had this incredible Christmas tree. I mean, holy cow, have you seen their Christmas tree? And I can see, oh my gosh, you guys have the matching pajamas. No way. Never seen it before, you know? And then, or I've seen, you know, you on social media and it's like, oh my gosh, Christmas. I'm just, you know, hashtag thankful because, you know, I got a brand new Mercedes Benz, you know, it's like, yeah, nobody likes you. Okay. So, so quit posting that. But, but isn't this true? That not only do we take the highlight reels from people's life, but we take particular aspects from different people's life, give no context to what's going on, but say, basically, I want that. Now, we all do this. And in every stage of life, here's what we find, is it transitions to probably something new or something different. But in every stage of life, it's something. In fact, let me just be honest. I think moms have this the worst. Let me tell you why. You can't mom without somebody feeling like they mom better than you, okay? It's called mommy shame. Like, if you're a mom and, and, and you are, you know, you, you stay at home with the kids, and I don't, honestly don't know how you do that. A lot of people are like, oh, it's a full-time job. Like, I don't care if it's full-time or not. That would be awful for me. Our kids would be terrible, okay? I don't know how you have the patience to sit there. Even if they're yours, like, that's worse, okay? I could deal with somebody else's kids, but my kids, I'm like, dude, just shut up, Okay? judge my parenting later, whatever. But, but here's the thing, and you guys, you all seen this, right? Moms, if, if, if you're at home and, and, and you are, you know, doing a bunch of stuff and a bunch of crafts and you're posting online and all the moms who, who don't work or do work, you know, full time and they're looking at that saying, oh my gosh, you know, I wish I could do that. And then the ones who don't, you know, work look at the ones who do work and say, oh my gosh, you know, I feel like maybe I'm not as valuable, as important. But isn't this true? No matter what you do, there's always someone who you feel like does it better than you. There's always someone who you feel like does it more significant than you or has more of it than you. Right, guys, you know, we like to pretend like we don't struggle with this. And, you know, we don't compare unless it comes to, like, you know, how much you lift, how much you make, how good your kids are, how athletic you are, how athletic your kids are, you know, how well your kids perform in school. What, what grade did your kid get? Oh, that's, oh, that's cute, you know. But here's the reality is we all struggle with the comparison. And though there is no win in comparison, because either I am going to look to you and I'm going to feel insecure because I'm not as good as you, or I'm going to look to you and I'm going to feel better because I am better than you, but that just develops an unhealthy sense of superiority. There's no win in comparison. We all struggle with this. In fact, Solomon, who we talked about last week, has some really insightful words. Solomon stood back and said this, and if you don't know who Solomon is, he was one of the wisest men. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter four, this is what Solomon notices about this. This is gonna get us rolling. This isn't our primary text. This is what he says. He says, then I saw, Solomon by the way is the king, greatest king, richest man on earth, most powerful man on earth. Israel was the nation's superpower and he was the king of the nation of Israel. Then I saw that all toil and skill in work 
comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. He said, I noticed as I was looking and I was observing that everybody with this drive, everybody with this ambition, everybody with this skill, (laughs) it came from saying, well, how am I doing compared to you? And how are you doing compared to me? And I want to be better than you and you want to be better than me. And you think about this. This this is innate inside all of us. You ask any kid who's 5 to 12 years old, and they know who is the fastest in class, and they know who's the smartest in class, right? Who's the fastest in your class? Oh, 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 Jimmy for sure. Dude's got wheels, you know? Who's the smartest? You know, oh, obviously, obviously, you know, Kim, you know, freaking, you know, Kim. She's always, she she gets gets every question right. It's it's innate inside all of us, and, and Solomon would look back and say, yeah. And, and when we see someone who's better than us, when we see someone who has something more than what we have, it, it's not that we just accept where we are in this totem pole. It drives us to want more, to do more, to be better. He said, but, but this is the problem with that. He said, that man's envy of his neighbor is what drives it. And then he continues, but this also is Vanity. And it's a striving after the wind. In other words, and as much as you want to think you got, as much as you want to think you grasp it, you just never actually get enough. Because there's always somebody better. There's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody faster. There's always somebody who, whose spouse is greater, whose, whose you know, bank account is bigger. There's always somebody who's you know, farther along in their profession than you are and I am. He says you just constantly want more, but it's never going to grasp it. So the problem is with that, right? Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Just like, you know, close up shop? Just not do anything? Not have any drive? Not have any ambition? He follows it up and he says this. He says, but the fool, the fool folds his hands. And this is a weird way he says this. I'm just going to admit this, okay? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, Okay. Let me tell you what he means by that. The fool is the person who says, okay, well, if all, everything I do is out of ambition, is out of drive, is just me comparing and being envious, that it's not just I'm understand where I am, it's that I actually want to be better, want to do better because I see you doing better and being better. That the fool is the person who reacts to that and responds to that and says, well, I'm not going to do anything. You just end up destroying yourself and your life and probably your family. And then he says words. Then I want to spend the rest of the time unpacking what they mean because they are the most insightful sounding words that we could probably read, but they are so difficult to be like, so what does that actually mean? I don't know if you've ever been there in the Bible where like you read the Bible like, oh my gosh, that was good. And then someone's actually like, so what does that mean? You're like, I don't know, but that was good. That's that, that, this, this is what he says. He says, better is a, is a handful of quietness. Now, the word he, the, the better translation for that word, or a good translation for that word, is tranquility. He says, better is a hand of tranquility than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. <laughs> Which we would all say, oh my gosh. You know, better one handful of tranquility. What does a handful of tranquility look like? I, I don't know, but it's better. I know that much. And, and if we're being honest, isn't that true? That you've seen people, you know people that have drive, they have this ambition, but there's just somewhere in them this deep sense of, 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 of deep peace. There's this sense of deep confidence that they know who they are. They know who God's called them to be. 
And you maybe didn't have the words to, to put to it, you didn't have the vocabulary to put to it, but in, in hindsight, as you look at it, you saw a bunch of people who maybe accomplished more, did more, had more, but these people, it was like they were <laughs> tranquil. And so I want to talk about how we have that. In a culture where more is better, more is better, more is better, and it's so accessible to see who has more, who has better, who has faster, who has, you know, all, all this stuff. How do we find tranquility? Well, the interesting thing is, Paul addresses this, but he doesn't address it through the lens of comparison. The Bible didn't talk, doesn't talk specifically and say comparison, comparison, comparison. The word that it uses for that is envy, jealousy, and selfish ambition. Envy, jealousy, and selfish ambition. And as Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi, now Jesus has now come on the scene, lived an extraordinary life, died, which no one expected, came back from the dead. Again, nobody expected because everybody saw him die. The church starts, starts going in all these different places. Paul, who hated Christians, becomes a Christian. And he writes letters to the churches. And in the book of Philippians, we have an ancient document that has been preserved that is Paul's writing to this church at Philippi. And in it, he gives us instruction on how we are to address and think about one another. And I think for us, unlocks the category for how we are to live as Christians that don't idolize comparison they don't idolize what you have or what you have. And I wish I had, or at least I had more of. So this is what he says. If you've got your Bible, you can flip, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. He says this virtually impossible words. Verse 3. It says, so do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. <laughs> So whenever you think about what you do, I want you to literally do nothing for yourself, is what Paul's saying here. Super easy, right? He says, do nothing from selfish ambition and vacancy, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. It's <laughs> just like Paul. I don't know if you know, man, that's the problem, is I do think everybody is more significant than I am. And that's the problem, is I don't want to be less significant than they are. Paul says, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. When you realize when you just own the fact that you are broken, sure, yeah, whatever. And in some circles you walk in and you're the most important person in the room. In some circles you walk in and you're the least important person in the room. But no matter what room you walk into, whether you are the least or whether you are the greatest, here's what I want you to do. I want you to not leverage it for yourself. In fact, I want you to not try to become more so that you can be more to other people. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk into every room that you walk into and consider every person in that room better than you. Now, let me just pause and say this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, or if you're in here and you're struggling with your faith, you've been hurt by churches and you've been burned by Christians. How much different would you think about Jesus, the church, and Christianity if what you experienced with Christians was not every Christian who you saw felt like they were better than you and projected themselves as better than you, but actually felt like they were, that you were better than them, deferred to you? You know what this looks like? We kind of get, you know, try to make this a little bit over complex. To think of someone else as more significant than yourself, better than you, this is like when you walk into um, a wedding, 
right? And, and procession comes in and people go and stand and, and all this. And, and then the, the music, you know, plays and I've officiated a number of weddings. So, you know, I'll, I'll rise, you know, you kind of give one of those. And, and, then, and then the bride walks in, everybody stands up and looks at her and a couple of jerks, like look back at the husband because you're trying to see if he cries, like whatever. But the bride walks down the aisle and everybody's looking at her. <laughs> no one jumps in the aisle and be like, guys, I'm here. Like, like your boy is wearing a purple shirt this morning. Hello, like world, here, here we go. You know, I am here. No, because in that moment, you know, everybody knows she is the most important person in the room. And so here's Paul's challenge. What if you treated everybody like that? What if you treated everybody like that? That when they walked in the room, they were like the bride who was walking on the aisle, that they were more important than you. And again, we said, well, that, that feeds into my insecurities that they are more important. Which I think Paul in a second is going to say exactly. He continues though, and he explains it a little bit differently in the next verse. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, so have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what he's going to go into is, is basically to say, now here's, here's why. Here's why. He's going to say, okay, I want you to every room you walk into, they're better than you. Every room that you walk into, not, not, not what is my interest, not how can I be better, how can I be better, how can I be better, but every room you walk into, how can you be better? How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I take this me-centered culture that drives this sense of comparison that I want to be better and say, hey, how do I leverage what I have to make you better, to serve you, to help you? And he says, so your mindset, our mindset, we shouldn't have to look far for this example. In fact, all we have to do is look at Jesus because he did this first. In fact, if we could just say, if there was one mindset to have, and this is kind of classic Bible, right? We should have the mindset of Jesus, obviously. But he says, but let me describe to you what I mean by that in these next couple of verses. He says, who though he was in the form of God, in other words, even though in Jesus the fullness of God the Father dwelt, the capacity, the holiness, the power, the authority was all in Jesus. And he could have come down with a bunch of angels and started just like <clears throat> smiting people, you know, zapping them with a like lightning bolts or something like zip, 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 like you're all dead. That would have been weird, but you know, we would have all been dead we're all sinful. But, you know, he could, he could have leveraged his authority. Here's what he said. He had the fullness of God, but he did not count equality with God or his being equal with God as something to be grasped or something to be leveraged. In other words, he could have pulled the God card, but he didn't. He did not think it would be best for us if he came down and just leveraged his authority for his glorification. At the core of who we are, isn't that what we do? We want to leverage what we have for more so that people will think we're better. And almost on a subconscious level, this drives so many of us. It drives it because we long for that relationship that we don't have. 
for that marriage that we don't have, for those kids that we don't have, for that career that we don't have, for the fact that we just don't even know, <laughs> seniors in, in college, right? We don't even know what we want to do. And there's somebody who's like a jerk in my class who's known what they wanted to do since kindergarten. And it's like, cool, man. No one else thinks like that. But, but there's sometimes we just didn't, didn't long for it. He says, so, so don't leverage what you do have for yourself so that you will be glorified. Why don't you do the opposite? In fact, this is what Jesus did. He continued, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He reiterates, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now, what Paul's saying is simply this. For you and for me, for all of us, we can continue to try to leverage our authority, our ability, what control we do have, what goodness we do have, what achievement we do have, what accomplishment we do have, to try to leverage it for more so that people will glorify us. Or we can stop and leverage everything that we have and everything that we are for the kingdom of God through the service to and for other people. Here's what I bet you would find. If you think back about your life and, and you think about the two or three or four, maybe you've had a dozen people who, when I said there's someone that comes to mind, they just, they just seemed like they had it together and not that they had everything, but they just, there was this inner peace. Here's what I bet you, honestly, I think regardless of what they believed. So I think just this biblical principle is true regardless of what you believe. That they spend their life not consumed with their self, but more interested in serving and helping other people. There's something just so attractive about that. There's something so winsome about that, that we see it. And sometimes it's so intangible, but... but but this is what I'm convinced creates a sense of tranquility because as long as my desire is for my glory, which is achieved through my betterment, my empowerment, my having more, my looking more, my being more, I will always, 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 always want more. But as soon as I realize that the posture of the gospel is simply to say, I am broken. I am sinful. I haven't done enough to earn my good graces, my, my way into God's good graces. But he saw that, didn't expect me to. He sent his son to die for it, in fact. But I now realize he's called me to do the same thing. And that's where you find peace. In fact, the words Jesus would say, that's where you find life. That anyone who wants to Find his life, must lose his life. But it's in your losing your life for the sake of God and through the service to other people that you actually find life. Whoever wants to be greatest must be least. For the Son of Man did not simply come to serve or to be served, but to serve. And if there was anybody who deserved being served, it was him. But he said, even for me, I leveraged who I am to serve other people for the glory of God. He says, this is how far Jesus was willing to go to show this and to model this and for our service. He became obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of And I love how it pauses there. It's almost like he says, now, now, I don't want you to think that the purpose of Jesus doing this was simply for self-glorification. Okay, I'm going to empty myself. And so then I empty myself and I serve other people. And then you're going to make me great. It's like this, like, you know, self-serving other struggles. He says, no, 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 no. Here was the entire point that God would be glorified in and through his life. And he just said, God, God, however I can point people to you. And God said, in fact, here's how it's going to be. I don't want you to pull the God card. I don't want you to leverage that. I want you to empty yourself. I want you to die on a cross. Now, if Jesus, if Jesus did that for us, then doesn't it make sense that our lives would be consumed with doing the same thing for other people? If Jesus would have all the power all the authority, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the if God, if, if he was God, fully God in human form, and he emptied himself, became nothing, became a servant, washed people's feet in a, in a culture where for us, like, we're like, oh, your feet's gross, your foot's gross. It's like, like, you haven't seen their feet. I want you to imagine you're walking around and it's dusty and it's dirty and you got sandals on for days on end. You don't take a bath very often, right? And Jesus, Savior of the world, full deity of God dwelt and he gets down on his, his feet, takes off his shirt and washes your feet with it. He says, that's where you find life. And sure, you can try to just (laughs) better yourself. You can try to just compare yourself, but it's, it's just never going to fulfill you. Or you can realize that the entire posture of the gospel is simply to say, I'm not enough. But God, you are. And the only reason I'm anything is because of who you are in my life. See, some of you, this this doesn't really connect because perhaps you were raised in a faith or a tradition of Christianity, a version of Christianity that was basically make yourself a good enough person. And if you better yourself, better yourself, good yourself, good yourself, good yourself, you dress up enough, you look nice enough, you look pretty enough, you be moral enough, then God will accept you. That's the opposite. I mean, read it for yourself. It's the realization that, God, I am a broken, sinful human being, and in and of my sinfulness, I am incapable of gaining a right relationship with you. And thank God for that, because you didn't expect me to. In fact, that's the whole reason Jesus came, because I couldn't. If I could, then there would be no need for Jesus. So Jesus served me through the cross, and he calls his sons and his daughters to now do the same thing. And so here's all I want you to think about before you leave. In fact, we're going to take communion in a minute, and and, and I'm going to explain the connection between that. But here's all I want you to do. In fact, it's the most challenging thing I feel like I can ask you to do right now. What's the area that you have the greatest tendency to compare yourself to someone else? The greatest tendency to want more or to feel superior because you have more? What does it look like to serve other people in that area? Your career is all about you. What does it look like to make your career not about you, but about loving and serving other people? Your kids, it's all about, you know, me, me myself, me, myself, me, just, 
You're just, frankly, using your kids to make yourself feel good. It's terrible. What does it look like? Because the Son of Man, God, saw this. In fact, the night before he died, he gathered his disciples together. And he said, this is my body. Took a piece of bread. Said, this is my body, which is going to be broken. (laughs) Not just for no reason. Not just because, oh, I figured, you know, I'd get tortured and crucified for a little while. Why not? What are you guys doing on Thursday? You know, no, it was, it was because my body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. We don't do this. We don't serve. We don't, what I think is the the key to ending a life of comparison is realizing that it, it starts with a life of service to other people. If my goal is myself, then I will always want more. But if my goal is you, I will always be excited for you, celebrate you, and think, how can I serve you? That's where contentment and joy happens. But it doesn't happen because we're good people. It happens because we have a God who's living and breathing inside of us. Who the night before he died, took the bread and said, this is my body is broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. I'm going to serve you through this. <laughs> now we just do it. Not because we're good, but because we have a God who is great. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who serves us. We have a God who did not expect perfection. In fact, he didn't even expect good. He died because we aren't. So we're going to take communion together. What we're going to do it is in a minute or I'm going to pray and our ushers are going to come forward. We're going to have two people or, you know, one little station right here and one little station kind of on the outside. I want you to come and just tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the, in, in the cup, grape juice, shout out. And when you do it, I just want you to take it and eat it. I want you to allow the way that God has served you to so wash over you. It drives a love and a service for other people as well. And to know there is no win in comparison and there never will be. It's only when you realize the embodiment of the gospel is a life bent loving and serving other people that we actually find life. Let's pray.